salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we dive into the prophet Zechariah? Father, I praise you that even on the days where it seems like only small things are being done, Lord, that we await the second coming of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would see our lives in light of the advent of your Son. And Father, would you orient us as your people and orient our church towards your mission. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Several years ago, I got to meet people from a very unique country. Uh, Anyone here ever traveled to Costa Rica? Has anyone ever been able to go to Costa Rica? Uh, Well, a few years ago, uh, I went on a mission trip to Costa Rica, and I got to meet Costa Ricans. Now, I studied German, which is not helpful when you're trying to speak Spanish. There's very different kind of languages, so I stumbled through uh, my attempts to speak to them in Spanish, but I did pick up one small thing from my time in Costa Rica, and that is, if you are referring to Costa Ricans, you don't call them Costa Ricans, you call them what? Ticos. Have you ever heard the phrase ticos? Uh, It's a diminutive uh, phrase that you could add to the end of a word. And so uh, if you were referring to a coffee, for instance, like if you wanted coffee in Costa Rica, you wouldn't say, you know, I want a coffee, because one, that would be English, but you get the point. You don't say, I don't want a coffee. What you would say is, I want a little coffee. You know, just a little coffee. And the way you would say that is you would say, cafe tico. And you add the word tico to the end of almost everything. And so you are a little tico because it's a way of viewing life where, you know, I just want a little coffee in my little house, in my little car, you know, and all I really want in this life is a little wife and a few little kids. And, you know, so that's the diminutive idea, right? It's a very uh, beautiful way of looking at life, right? So they add tico to the end of a lot of words, right? Cafe tico, Uh, un poquito tico is I think how they say it. They're not even, they even have a diminutive for a little bit, a little bit. Now, I think there's something really beautiful and endearing about that, and I think they have a great view of it, but, you know, as I've thought about, you know, Zechariah and uh, the idea of what really Zechariah is speaking to, I think many of us have that same mentality, but not in an endearing sort of way, but sort of in a way that's a little bit more jaded. Uh, We think everything is just sort of small. Uh, The days that we are living, nothing really important is happening Maybe my good days are behind me. Uh, you know, maybe if you're a teenager in the room, you, would, you maybe have thought possibly in your life that nothing exciting happens in the Rogue Valley, you know, that maybe Portland or L.A. or Denver is more exciting. You know, we just live in the little Rogue Valley with little coffee shops, with a little church, with a little school, and little old Jacksonville, and a little bit of excitement. Well, if that sounds vaguely familiar to you, Uh, that life seems to lack excitement, Uh, and maybe there's just not the pop of life that you're looking for, Uh, I think you can walk through the door of Zechariah and get a little bit of an understanding of what Zechariah is speaking to. You see, if you look down at Zechariah, we're introduced to who he is right there in verse 1-1, so you can open up uh, to Zechariah 1-1, and we're introduced to him, his name is Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, And if you're a student of the New Testament, you may remember vaguely that Jesus talks about a Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Jesus lets us know that actually this Zechariah was killed 
Uh, He was martyred for his faith. But if you remember the story of the Old Testament that we've been going through this whole time, you may remember that God raises up a nation in Israel. Uh, Their commission is to be a blessing to all of the nations, right? God is going to bless Israel so that they will be a blessing to all the nations. But Israel, do they succeed in that charter mission or do they sort of fail? Well, the story of the Old Testament, unfortunately, is of their failure where they get removed from the promised land. The nation gets split in two. But because God is gracious and forgiving, he promises to bring them back to the promised land so they can fulfill their mission to bring peace to the nations. And that's exactly the story arc of the whole Old Testament. And really what's happening in Zechariah, of course, is Zechariah is speaking to the people during the time that they have come back to the promised land. So the people have seen their great nation, they've seen their great nation split in two, they've seen them be exiled, and now they're back. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you may remember in the sermon with Haggai, Haggai looks around at the rebuilt nation and they're looking at the temple, and it's really disappointing. They've regathered, but even God says, is the temple anything like it used to be? Is the country like it used to be? But don't worry, there is a coming Messiah yet. That's basically what Haggai is saying. And the reason I mention Haggai is if you look in your Bible, Haggai and Zechariah are back-to-back in your Bible. And you'll actually, if you study the book of Ezra, Haggai and Zechariah live at exactly the same time. They're saying both the same things. In fact, Zechariah tells the people, he says, if you think you're living in the day of small things, rejoice, because God has something incredible in store In fact, in Zechariah 4.10, God has to tell them, if you despise the day of small things, don't get discouraged. Rejoice. I have something incredible planned. Right, so what is Zechariah exactly all about? Well, uh, if you look at Zechariah, Zechariah is, uh, there's a sort of a thread through the Bible. You know what a tapestry looks like? Have you ever seen a tapestry, right, and you have threads going through it? Well, I would say that Zechariah and Revelation and uh, Ezekiel, those three books, if those books mean anything to you, they have a certain feel to them that are a little different, right? Anyone ever tried to read Revelation, you know? And it's like, well, I, I think I got through like the first two chapters, and then I got confused for the rest of them, right? Well, Zechariah reads very similarly because it's prophetic and apocalyptic. It's sort of like when you get through Daniel. Has anyone ever read through Daniel? And then you get into the last couple chapters, and you're like, what happened to the lion's den? What happened to the easy stories? Well, Zechariah and Ezekiel and Revelation all sound very similar. They're like a red thread through the tapestry of God's Word. And so as we look at Zechariah, it may strike you as a little bit strange, but it wouldn't have struck the people as strange. In fact, they probably would have thought it was more interesting. You know, just like we today always find Revelation interesting. I learned many years ago that if I ever told a group of people, hey, what do you want me to preach on? Or what do you want the Bible study to be about? What do they always say? Revelation, right? And I'm always like, oh, man. Can you just pick something easy? Well, if you look at Zechariah, what we start to see is he gets very strange visions. So in in chapter 1, he's given the first of eight visions, and these visions carry him through the first six chapters. So one of the visions is of four horsemen. Does that sound vaguely familiar to you? Well, the book of Revelation is going to pick up on that theme of four horsemen. But in Zechariah, what God is telling Zechariah in verses 7 through 17, that God is using his angelic host to oversee this world, that God is not gone. Even if the Babylonians exiled us, God is still orchestrating all things for his glory. 
Now, there's another vision in chapter 1 of horns and craftsmen. It's a reminder that God is going to prove himself just. In chapter 2, there's another strange vision with a man and a measuring line. Uh, and the purpose of this is God is going to rebuild the nation of Israel. And, you know, that sounds very similar to what Haggai and Zechariah have all been talking about. But if you look in Zechariah chapter 2, why is the nation being rebuilt? Why does God rebuild the nation during Zechariah's life? Well, look at verse 2.10. God starts to tell us why the nation was rebuilt. Sing and rejoice, O daughter Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Hmm. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. You know, the most important verses in the Bible were the very first verses that I began the whole series with, which is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God calls a man named Abraham, and he says, I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and in you all the nations shall be blessed. Israel's very charter document was to redeem this broken world. And now, Zechariah, writing at the end of the Old Testament, is reminding us that that was the purpose for Israel. It was always to bring about the salvation of the nations. There's another strange vision. This time, uh, there's this strange person called the angel of the Lord who speaks as God, yet is distinct from God somehow. And then this angel of the Lord, this messenger of Yahweh, speaks with Satan. And we see that the high priest of God's people is filthy, but this strange angel of the Lord washes him clean. And then he says that there will actually come a day that a Messiah will come who will ultimately redeem God's people. Look at Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends, that is the other priests, you who sit before you, for they are a men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, that is the Messiah. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Zechariah says that there is a day coming when there will be a stone, a cornerstone, as he will later call it, that will remove all the sin of God's people. Uh, he continues on with another strange vision of a golden lampstand. And this is where uh, God's people don't really see how the rebuilding of the nation is bringing about any of this, right? I mean, we're regathered, but isn't it a lot more dead? Isn't it a lot more less exciting than it used to be? I mean, that's what Haggai's having to address, and that's what Zechariah himself is having to address. But in this vision, what does the Lord say through Zechariah? Look at Zechariah 4.10. For whoever has despised the day of small things... <laughs> Anybody ever felt, well, this is kind of disappointing. My life isn't that exciting. Is God really going to redeem this world? Does my life really have purpose? Whoever has despised the day of small things, they shall rejoice, and they shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. See what he's saying there is the king Zerubbabel, the king of Israel, is going to rebuild the city so that it will fill its mission to save this world. Uh, chapter 5, we're given two strange images. <laughs> if you think Revelation is weird, we'll just read its you know, inspiring document, Zechariah. 
uh, we're introduced to a flying scroll. Uh, it's 30 feet by 15 feet, and the point is this scroll flies over, and it's reminding us that God is going to bring justice to the land. And we're given another vision in chapter 5 of a woman in a basket, and this woman is sin, and she is sent to Babylon, and she's carried uh, by two other women who have the wings of a stork. So, see, this is where we find it very strange. I thought somebody would laugh at the wings of a stork. You know, it's a little, I find it a little odd. I'm like, okay, well, I guess that's something. Um, you know, this is probably why you don't want me preaching Revelation. I'm like, ah, oh, that's, it's, there it is. But the purpose there, of course, is God is removing sin from his people, and it's going to go to Babylon. And if you've read Revelation, I know there are women in a Revelation Bible study. Raise your hand if you're in the women's Revelation Bible study. Well, Revelation ends, and there's the, the woman of Babylon, and she represents all the wickedness. Well, he gets that right here from Zechariah, where God promises one day to finally remove sin. And then, of course, in chapter 6, if you look down, the final vision is we're introduced again to the horsemen. And the point is that God is overseeing this world. And then, of course, uh, chapter 6, 7, and 8 becomes sort of this transition period. Well, what are we supposed to do? What are we looking forward to? And something very strange happens in Zechariah chapter 6. Look down there, will you? In, in chapter 6, verses 9 and following through uh, chapter 7, God does something very strange. He tells Zechariah, he says, go to some of the people who have escaped from Babylon and get some gold from them. They'll give it freely. And take the gold and make a crown. And, you know, Zechariah does this. And who, who wears a crown? Does the priest or does a king wear a crown? Who do you think wears a crown? The king or a priest? The king does. What tribe are the kings supposed to come from in Israel? They're supposed to come from the tribe of Judah. Where do the priests come from? They come from the tribe of Levi. And never the twain shall meet, right? You're not supposed to mix. Just like we today, we can't have the president also be on the Supreme Court, also be a sitting senator, right? Because there needs to be separation of power. Well, that was how God set up Israel. These are the priests. They stand between you and God. They make sacrifices for you when you sin. And the king leads. And he determines what God is calling us to do. And that's been the case all throughout the history of Israel. But what happens in Zechariah chapter 6 is fascinating. Because Zechariah is told to make a crown and then to put it on the head of the priest, on Joshua. And then in front of everyone, Zechariah is to say, Behold, here symbolically is your Messiah, the prophet, the priest, and the king, all wrapped into one. So now the king is a priest and a king. And right there, if you look in Zechariah chapter 6, look at verse 12. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch. And the branch there means he's coming from the tree of David, the line of David. Here's the descendant of David, the Messiah. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. Now, if you're living in the time of Zechariah, that should strike you as very strange that the priest, the high priest, is also the high king who himself will rebuild the temple. I thought you told us we were rebuilding the temple. Wasn't that the point? Weren't we rebuilding the temple, Zechariah, and that what we're supposed to do? So how is there a king who's going to come one day to be a priest who's really going to build the temple? And what are we supposed to do in the meantime before this king comes? 
Well, chapter 7 and 8 tells the people what to do. Until this king comes, they should devote themselves to justice and mercy. And really, that's chapter 7 and 8. What do we do before then? We're to cling to living justly, showing mercy, and then looking forward to the day that God redeems his people. And then again, at the very end of chapter 8, we're given another vision of hope, and God says, be just, be merciful, await the coming of the Messiah, because there will come a day that people from all the nations will come to Israel and say, teach us about God. And really, that's Zechariah 1 through 8. Now, here's where it gets difficult. That was the easy part. Anyone ever read Hebrews? Hebrews is very difficult. It is the graduate school of preachers, and it's where I'm going to preach on Hebrews next fall. I've got to work my way up to it. But there's this, really, there's this really encouraging verse that's also secretly super discouraging about halfway through Hebrews where the author says, now let us leave the elementary principles behind and go on to the real stuff. And you're like, that wasn't the real stuff? Like the first half of this book wasn't the real stuff? It's very intimidating, right? So, Here's about to get intimidating because in chapters 9 through 14, we're given even more interesting things. But just, here's the thing to know. Here's where the New Testament writers get really excited about what Zechariah has to say. Because in chapter 9, the tone changes and Zechariah says, one day God will defeat his enemies. He will defeat them all. And you'll know that's happening because you will see a king riding on a colt the fall of a donkey, and his rule will be from sea to sea, and he will speak what to the nations? Peace. Peace to the nations, and he will rule over them. That's Zechariah 9 and 10. And as it continues, God says he will save his people. They'll be like a jewel in his crown. At chapter 10, he continues on, and he says, now God is going to clean his house up. He says he's unhappy with the shepherds and the religious leaders at this time. And the people are wandering around like sheep without a shepherd. Look at verse 10 2. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. And so what is the Lord going to do? Well, look at verse 3. The Lord says, my anger is hot against those shepherds, and I will punish them. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them his majestic steed in battle. And from the Lord shall come the what? The cornerstone. Is this sounding vaguely familiar to you? Again, God promises to defeat his enemies. But then in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, things start to get even more strange because God invites and commands Zechariah in chapter 11, starting in verse 4, to perform a sign act. He says, now I want you, Zechariah, to sort of act out like you are a shepherd to this people. And as you act out being a shepherd, you are really acting like the Messiah. Okay, so as you act out this, you know, sort of shepherding role, it's supposed to be a sign telling people what the shepherd, the good shepherd, the ultimate king is going to be like. And so as you do this, just know that ultimately they're going to reject you. And that's exactly what happens in Zechariah 11, verse 8. He says the people despise him being this true shepherd. And so he goes to them and they say, you know, you're basically worthless to us. And so Zechariah says, fine, well, pay me my wages. And you know what they pay him? 30 pieces of silver. And so we're introduced to a shepherd who God's people despise and is paid off for 30 pieces of silver. And then in chapter 12, 
Continuing down in chapter 10, we are given profound verses where God says that one day His people will know Him for who He truly is. Of course, the way they're going to know Him is going to be because God's going to reveal His grace and His forgiveness and His mercy, and He will cleanse them from all of their sins. But the, the light bulb is going to go off at a specific moment. And you know what the light bulb is for the people when they finally see God for who He truly is? Look at verse Zechariah 12, verse 10. The Lord says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then look at 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So who is this person being pierced? And what is to happen with this good shepherd? Amazingly, if you look at Zechariah, verse 13, 7, the Lord turns to this Messiah, this branch, this coming king, and God says what? Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. So what we're introduced to in verse, I could go into chapter 14, but it's pretty complicated. What I want you to see is there's this consistent story that God's people are living during a time where, you know, it's like, I guess nothing important's going on, you know? We were told to rebuild the country, rebuild the temple, but man, is it discouraging. Things aren't like the way they used to be. I guess I should, you know, help with rebuilding the temple, but what's the point, you know? It's just small days. And Zechariah's answer is basically, don't you see? You stand before the advent. Advent means the coming, the appearing. What Zechariah is saying, don't you see, you may think you're living in small days, but there is the advent of the Messiah, and he will ultimately build the temple of God, and he will ultimately speak peace to the nations. He will ultimately defeat your enemies, and somehow, majestically, God himself will be pierced in the process. So don't despise the day of small things. Don't you see the kingdom coming? That's Zechariah's answer to the people. So what does that mean for us? Well, if you're a Christian, uh, I'm, I'm sure that you are starting to hear similar things being picked up on. We know who the king is. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, we know that he speaks peace to the nations because he offers forgiveness and salvation to people from every people group. Uh, we know that he is our great high priest because why? How is Jesus our high priest? Because he offers himself, his body, and his blood as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And so we no longer need priests to make sacrifices because he himself is the priest who offers the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. And of course, Zechariah is looking forward to the day that there would be a shepherd and that God would judge false shepherds and raise up a cornerstone, a true shepherd, and we understand, though, that this shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. 
In fact, in Matthew 27, when Jesus is doing the Lord's Supper for the very first time, he says, now it's time for me to be betrayed. And you know what he quotes? He quotes Zechariah. He says, it is now time for the shepherd to be struck and the sheep to be scattered. And Peter, you will deny me three times. Because all the words of the prophets have to be fulfilled. And of course, uh, how is it possible at all? How is it at all possible that God himself would be pierced? I mean, what in the world is the Lord saying in Zechariah 12, verse 10? And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him. How is God going to be pierced? And how are they going to mourn like a firstborn has died? Well, this is the great beauty of the incarnation of Jesus. Because not only is he the branch of David, not only is he fully human, not only is he from the tribe of Judah, Jesus himself is also fully God. He's God in human form, come to take the punishment that our sins deserve. God says, I am not going to punish you for your sins. I will take the punishment your sins deserve because I am so loving. I love the way Tim Keller explains the gospel. He says, if God is good, he has to punish sin. But if God is merciful, how can he not offer to take the punishment for us? If God is loving and forgiving, why would he not offer himself? He is the man who is the shepherd who is struck. He is the one who speaks on our behalf as priest, and he is our king. Friends, are you seeing how the New Testament understands all of these to be fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus? And of course, Zechariah, if this is too complicated for you, Zechariah does make it very easy. He says, if you want to know who the ultimate king is, you'll know him by a sign because he will ride in triumphantly, not on a war horse, not with a vast army, not with a sword in his hand. His advent will be very obvious for you to see. And how is he going to come? You'll know him when he walks into Jerusalem riding on the colt, the fall of a donkey. And of course, in the week of Passion, how does Jesus enter Jerusalem? On a donkey. If that was too complicated, look for the guy on the donkey in Jerusalem. And of course, the New Testament all says that Jesus' triumphal entry is in fulfillment of Zechariah. So, as we finish up the whole series, uh, I hope you've been stretched. I really do. I know it's been stretching for me. But I hope you're starting to see um, so much that the Old Testament is like the rich soil. It's like the roots of the tree. And if we just look at the fruit, right, if we just look at the fruit of the tree, we miss the incredible importance of the roots, right? We miss the trunk. And so really when we come out of the Old Testament, as we pick up, uh, you know, sort of next week into Advent, I want to remind you that just as Zechariah and his people kind of felt like, well, you know, regathered church life is sort of disappointing, let's be honest, and maybe my best days are behind me, and maybe life in the Rogue Valley is really boring. But what would Zechariah tell you? If you were living 2,000 years ago, is what Zechariah would say. He'd say, 
don't you, don't you know the king is about to come? Get ready. Rebuild the temple. And of course, you and I know that the first advent of Jesus has come. Jesus entered our world 2,000 years ago. But the beautiful thing as we get ready for Advent is we know that we await the second Advent, the second coming of Jesus. And so you may think your best days are behind you, or you may think life is boring here, but it's not. In the world where God enters our world and where he's coming again, friends, there are no small days. <laughs> there are no small days. Commit to the mission. How could there be a small day when we serve the king who is coming again? Uh, friends, that's what the whole Old Testament's about. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we look forward, and Lord, we pray that we could hasten the day of your coming. Uh, Father, as we live what seems like Tico lives, small days, Father, would you give us a vision of your kingdom? Lord, we praise you that you sent your son Jesus to fulfill all that Moses and the prophets said about him. Lord, I pray that we would see more and more people profess faith in you, even this Advent. Lord, that we would help light the way. And Lord, that we would see people cleansed by the blood of your Son. Now, Father, would you pull us out of our uh, sadness, uh, any depression we may be in. Lord, would you give us a vision for your kingdom. And Father, thank you that there are no small days in your kingdom. Amen. Mm -hmm.